Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at frito All right, welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. My name is Jeff Sharon. I'm your host, along with Eric Lopez. What's going on, Eric? Jeffrey, the football is finally here. Oh. Finally, all the hyperbole and guessing and speculation is coming to an end. It's finally here, man. It's finally here. We got some, we got a taste of it actually last weekend with that game out in uh, Australia, and then the Division One FCS kickoff game at North at North Dakota State. They had a busy Thursday night. We're recording this on a Friday. Uh busy Friday night too tonight. It's it's see, I'm glad college football did this. So the NFL used to start on Labor Day weekend, right? And then they pushed it back a weekend. So college football said, "All right, we'll own Labor Day weekend because everyone's going to travel to our games anyway." And I love that we have basically 5 days of college football to kick off the season. Isn't it great? Yeah, no, it's become they have owned this weekend. It's the one everybody's working, waiting for. And it's one of the best college opening weekends uh, that in recent memory with all the marquee matchups going back to really maybe 1998 when there was a lot of top 25 matchups. Uh, it's not going to involve UCF, but even UCF, I think, is an interesting storyline in their opener because of all of the brand new stuff. The Scott Frost era finally begins a new era in this new offense, the Oregon offense, and finally get to be on the field and right. see if what, how it looks. So we're going to get to that in just a second, previewing UCF's first game of the season against South Carolina State. Then a little bit later, we'll talk about the uh, UCF making the short list for the Big 12. Uh, we'll do some season predictions for UCF uh, football, and then we'll check in with some of the other sports as well here on this week's podcast to get you ready for First Frost. Don't forget, you can follow us at UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter. Also, look us up on Facebook. You can download this podcast via Apple iTunes. You can also download us via Stitcher and Google Play. You can follow me at Jeff underscore Sharon, and you can follow Eric at Eric Lopez Elo on Twitter. All right, Elo, here we go. First game of the Scott Frost era. We've been waiting for this since December 1st, when Scott Frost was hired, right after the Thanksgiving weekend last year. And his first game as a head coach anywhere, and his head coach at UCF is going to be against Division I FCS South Carolina State, the Bulldogs coming to Bright House Network Stadium for the second time in school in, in the history of these two schools. First one was back in 2008, a game that I was at when I was working at UCF. Uh, a seventeen nothing win for UCF that was punctuated by Michael Greco's ninety yards passing. He was pretty bad. Um, that's why they moved him over to safety a little bit later. Um, I was there. I was there a, for that. Yeah, it was the f- first game of a rough season, a four and eight season for UCF back then, and it was played in a partial rainstorm. And we, I remember, we were thinking, God, why are we only beating this team by seventeen points? Well, a little bit look a little look at South Carolina State. They're coached by Oliver Buddy Pugh. He's in his fifteenth season at South Carolina State. He's an alma mater. He's uh, he was an offensive lineman back there back in the day, and uh, you don't stay at a place for fifteen years without doing some good stuff. As far as the history of their program is concerned, they've been to the uh, FCS playoffs uh, four times actually since two thousand eight. That year that they. Lost to a 17-0. They went to the playoffs and lost in the first round to Appalachian State. Last playoff appearance was back in 2013 when they lost in the first round to Furman. But uh, this is a pretty good squad, Elo, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, we were. Lo- I was looking at some of the numbers, and I tweeted some of this out. You know, they're known for their defense. And earlier this week, I was uh, on the UCF Nightline podcast with Trace Chulko and Andrew Fegley, and we had their uh, media relations director for South Carolina State, his name is Kendrick Lewis on. 
he was touting up the defense, and that defense is no joke, man. They they were number one last year in FCS in team passing efficiency defense, allowing the lowest quarterback rating of any team in the FCS, just 89.98. First and third down conversion percentage defense, just 23% given up. Fourth in scoring defense, they average giving up just 15.2 points per game. Third in the country in FCS in passing yards allowed at 143 Point five and sixth in total defense, allowing just 280 yards a game. So we're used to seeing an FCS team in the first game in the schedule and thinking, oh, this team's a cupcake. This ain't no cupcake, is it? Well, it isn't, and it, I don't think there's such a thing as a cupcake when you're coming off an 0-12 season. Yeah, <laughs> so, ain't that the truth? There's no such thing. And look, UCF lost to an FCS team last year in Furman, and uh, this South Carolina team's a better team than Furman was last season. They now, beat Furman says, last year, 17-3. Correct. correct. So, uh, look, I think it's one of those deals, and we've seen it over and over. We're, uh, even Thursday night, Connecticut was life and death against Maine. Cincinnati struggled against Tennessee Martin. So, you know, look, you know the South Carolina State for them. It's a big game for them. They always get up for these games. They've played top teams in the FBS. They've played the Clemsons and among other schools in, in, in the Power Five. So, I don't think they're going to see any – they're not going to be intimidated or anything like that. Uh, and I think it's going to be fascinating to me. And really, I think for UCF it's an important game to win, and I don't even think the margin matters. I think they can win by three or win by 20. doesn't matter. They need to get a win, and, and Scott Frost uh, has addressed this, and he's mentioned this over and over about how this team needs to just get a win and put that bad taste from last year behind them and learn how to win. And I think that is important because this team right now has worked very hard. They've had a different scheme. Everything's hunky-dory, but you got to get results. And I think if this team can get a win in their first game, I think they can officially put last year behind them. Now, if they lose this game, now it's like, oh, or maybe we're the same old Knights, you know, from last year. Maybe we aren't that very good talent-wise. Then you got to go to Michigan. That's going to be a rough game. Then you got to host a Maryland team, that's a team that is a Big Ten school that's got DJ Durkin, new head coach. And while they had a down year last year, remember they beat South Florida up pretty good, who went, you know, ended up uh, at the top of the America Conference. So it, it, my point is, it doesn't get easier. So I think it's important to just get off that schneid and just get a win. And I think psychologically and, and emotionally, it will be big for the program and big for Scott Frost. So I think that's really the only focus you can have of your CF is just get the win and. I don't think they're going to take South Carolina State lately at all. And I think the execution, this new offense, does the personnel, Jeff, fit the scheme? Yeah. And I think it's going to, it's, I was talking, I wrote this in my uh, preview on blackandgoldbanneret.com, the five biggest questions heading into the uh, UCF season, that this is the square peg in the round hole problem, right? Because these are George O'Leary's players for the most part trying to play in Scott Frost's offense. And right off the bat, they have a challenge against a defense that, on the face of it, should be beatable, but has the potential to cause some problems, uh, in particular for South Carolina State. So this is a team that went 7-4 uh, and four last year in, out of the MEAC. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I, just, I, I, I think there are going to be times when the offense is going to look great, and we're thinking, "Wow, this is going to be fantastic." They're going to be this is going to be a fun team to watch, and then there are going to be times when they don't look like they know what they're what the hell they're doing uh, with this new offense. So there's going to be some growing pains with it. But if you're going to experience some growing pains, you may as well do it against a pretty challenging opponent still from FCS, as opposed to say having to play Michigan in the first game of the season last year, right? Sure, no question about it, and. Look, I think there's a lot of optimism. You know, Scott Frost was on Untuck and O'Neill earlier this week on Sports Talk 1080, the Team Orlando show I produced. And uh, Jeff, and I, he had this comment that was fascinating to me that he talked about when he walked in and took the job at UCF. It was an 0-12 team. He was surprised how much talent was really on this roster still. Well, yeah, when you're taking over a team that's 0-12, uh, I didn't know what I'd walk in and see. Um, there's there's guys on this team that that can play football, and and the the great thing about this team is there's a lot of guys that love football and they love playing. Um, then it was just our coach's job to train them, and uh, we got a bunch of guys that can play and play play the game well. So 
it's our job to get them in the right spots, get them executing, and I imagine there'll be steady progress in those areas throughout the year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I, I, he makes a good point there, and I think that uh, you know, but you know, maybe we shouldn't be all that surprised that there's that much talent on the roster. I've, I always felt like there was talent on the roster last year. It's just that everybody got hurt. You had to rely on a bunch of backups and freshmen who, um, you know, you never want to have to rely on them, obviously. And when the coaching staff basically gives up, you know, the players didn't think that they had any faith in them. So uh, psychologically, this team is damaged. I think that's going to be the biggest hump that they're going to have to get over. Is sort of, I've been saying this before. The PTSD that some of these guys must have from last year's season, they – I'm glad to hear them now talking about how much fun football is again. I think that's what Scott Frost, that was the big mental hurdle that he and his staff had to overcome is to get these kids to love playing football again, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think, as he mentioned in the interview here with Tuck and O'Neill, when he talked to Jerry O'Neill about it, is he told the players, look, we're going to do things here completely different than what you were used to under the previous regime. Nothing against the previous regime, but we're going to do things differently. We're going to get results out of it. And part of it is having fun. And I think you're right. And, and he goes into detail about that here with Jerry. Well, we, we just landed on shore and burned the ships. Um, it, it was full speed ahead. We didn't look back. Um, you know, I explained to the guys that um, the way that they did things before isn't the way we're, we're doing it going forward. And, and we had unbelievable buy-in. Uh, the whole team, I think, was hungry for a different uh, angle and of attack and, and a different process and um, every single guy on the team bought in immediately and and we've been taking steps forward ever since. Uh, any good organization, I think, uh, becomes great when everybody pulls in the same direction. They know where they're going and everybody's working together to make the, the unit better. And our guys have done a really good job buying in and doing that. Yeah, and you know, on the field is not just the only thing that's going to be. Uh completely different from last year there's a lot of new bells and whistles surrounding UCF football this year and uh, this as a fan is some of the stuff that I'm most excited about everyone's going to be looking forward to the big reveal of the video board the new video board at Bright House Network Stadium there's a brand new sound system installed that's going to sound a lot better than what we had before there's the pregame concert series uh, we're doing the coordination with the uh, colors that the fans are wearing at the game. UCF is wearing white at home for the first time since, I believe, the 1980s. Uh, yeah, 1984. Yeah, 1984. The new uniforms with names on the back and the whole nine. Uh, it is uh, <laughs> brand new and improved, right, from last year's model. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there'll be a lot of new stuff, fresh and I know they've encouraged the fan base to come out early into their seats about a half hour before a kick and do some different things. And, look, I think it's all good. But I think you would agree, with all that being said, the on-the-field product will dictate you know, the, the interest and the support. I mean, you yeah. can do all the window dressing you want and you know, all the fancy stuff, but you know the product's got to be good. And if this team wins a lot of games, then people will come. If they don't win, I don't think – you know. Jim Blossoms is going to get more people out there just even if the team is struggling. So, um, you know, it will be interesting. I'm very interested to see, obviously, all the new stuff. I know they've de redecorated some of the stadium as well. Um, but it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting what kind of crowd they get for a Saturday night game, 7 o'clock, because that's always been a long debate. A lot of fans didn't like the weeknight games. Mm -hmm. They didn't like early Saturday games, so here they go. And I think Scott Frost, I get a, a sense that he likes the Saturday night games. It's kind of what they did at Oregon. And uh, we'll see how the crowd is, how big the crowd is. And, and I'm also interested, Jeff, in the length of the game. You know, you talk about the no huddle and the spread offense, and you've seen this across the board in college football. In fact, there's been a study that I believe in the last last year, the game's length was about three hours and 23 or three hours and 24 minutes, which is about 15, 16 minutes longer than it was, say, six, seven years ago. And I think what you're seeing is with a lot of these no huddles and spread offenses and with that clock stopping on first downs, that games tend to deal a little longer. So the fans also have to be a little bit more uh, pace themselves a little bit more than maybe in the past when George would and UCF in the past would run the football, try to win that time of possession and uh, kind of play under their own tempos. Now we're kind of following everybody else's lead. So 
could be some interesting uh, lengthy nights this season. Yeah, you know what's interesting about this? I went back and I looked at the uh, time of possession numbers because I was interested in seeing, you know, with Frost's offense at, uh, at Oregon coming over here to UCF, um, one of the big keys is going to be how the defense adjusts to being yes. on the field more. So I went back and I looked on, and you can, and uh, I have a link to this on uh, uh, in the show notes um, at this preview. I looked back at the last five years and compared Oregon's time of possession numbers to UCF's time of possession numbers. Now, last year, Oregon and UCF were actually back to back in FBS in time of possession. UCF was 111th and Oregon was 112th. Now, the reason why UCF's time of possession was so bad was because the team was so bad. Okay, but if you look back through the last uh, through the four years before that, 2014, Oregon has never been higher than 104th in the country in time of possession. UCF has never been lower than 39th. In fact, in the last four years, from 2014 down to 2011, they were 19th, 20th, 39th, and 5th in time of possession. In 2011, I thought this was interesting. UCF was 5th in the country in time of possession. Oregon was dead last. But... (laughs) But look at the results. You know, Oregon never higher than 104th in that statistic sure. in the last five years. Guess what? They really don't care because they won themselves a lot of games the last five years, didn't they? Well, yes, but that's going to be the thing, and people are going to have to adapt to now is defensive stats for UCF is going to be drastically different than it was in the past. Maybe not so much last year, but um, be a lot of bend but don't break. Well, that's the thing. They're going to give up a lot of yards and, you know, they're going to give up points. And, you know, you kind of if you watch Big 12 football now, if you go to advanced stats, people now judge defenses not as much by just points allowed, but points per possession, if you will, because mm-hmm. you're going to be on the field so much. You're going to have extra possessions because of all the no huddles going on in college football. So the question for this defense, they're going to give up a lot of yards and they're going to give up points. The key is, can they force turnovers and get yes. off the field and put them and get the offense back on the field. That's going to be the key. Can they force turnovers and can they get stops in the red zone? Uh, that red zone defense will be a key because you're going to give up yardage when you're on the field a lot. You're just going to wear down. And Scott Frost has alluded to it throughout the fall. This team does not have a lot of depth. So if they can't afford to have injuries, and I think that's a concern with UCF, the one whereas in Oregon. They have more depth, so I, they probably are, are suited to deal with injuries more than, say, right now UCF's at at the current position. So uh, that's going to be interesting to me. Uh, but what's interesting is Scott Frost has felt that the defense has been ahead of the offense most of this fall uh, until recently. So who knows? Uh, that's the thing. Who knows? Um, you know, like I said, I the one thing we got to remember going into last year at this time, a lot of people thought UCF would win the division. In the American, um, a lot of people wonderful. like, <laughs> sure, and a lot of people like the talent, and you know, defensively it just didn't work. I, I just wasn't the, the the right recipe. Lack of pass rush, I think that's a huge key right there, Jeff. Is the pass rush? If you have a pass rush, that makes your secondary better, and that makes your linebackers better. If you have no pass rush, it, it's a long day for your defense. So, can you see get some pressure? on the quarterbacks and some push to stop the run, I think will be a key for that defense. Uh, I expect them to gamble. I expect them to blitz a lot. Uh, So it's going to be interesting how they handle that, but make no mistake about it. And I've made this comparison on the air. I think if you're UCF this year, I think the goal is to kind of be like what Tulsa was last year under their first year head coach, Philip Montgomery. And that was, they took a team that finished near the bottom of the conference the year before and got them to be respectable got them to a bowl game, and they had to win a lot of shootouts. And uh, you had to win a lot of 45-38 games because, you know, you have to be clicking on offense. And UCF has a lot of experience back on offense, a lot of talent in the skill position players, in particular the receivers and the tight ends, which I know Scott Frost has mentioned. It makes me wonder, Jeff, if maybe Scott Frost adapts a little bit and maybe throws the football more then maybe he called at Oregon when they try to run the football and run the read and react. I think it's easy for us to forget that this offense is actually a run-centric offense. They use right. the, the zone read and all that to actually open up the play-action game and open up right. the big plays down the field. 
in that respect, it's almost it's almost traditional. It's just the way they do it is different. It's not, you know, pro set eye formation. It's out it's out of zone reads and shotgun, and you get and you get the occasional you know jet sweep with a guy coming from the wide receiver position and all that, and then that opens up the passing lanes for you know seam patterns and other stuff downfield. I think you made a great point about the turnovers and how the defense is going to have to is going to have to force a lot of them. This has been their mantra with UCF fierce. Last year, UCF was second to last in FBS in turnover margin at minus twenty. So that has got to improve this year if UCF wants to, to wants to win some games. I think you're right. I think we're going to see a lot of shootouts. I think it's going to be back to the uh, halcyon days of uh, Mike Kruzek. Uh, and uh, and that high flying offense with Ryan Snyder and all those guys throwing the ball all over the field. Funny how uh, a member of the Kruzek family is back at UCF now with Garrett Kruzek, Mike's son, as a backup quarterback now. But um, I think that this year in particular, that's what we're going to have to see. UCF's going to have to win a lot of close, tight, potentially high scoring games um, where they just whoever. It's, we're probably going to see a lot of games where whoever has the ball last is going to be the ones to take it. So um, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the season in general. I want to, I want to get us on the record here with, the, with a look at UCF's football schedule. I went through the schedule this year, and I think there are, I think, three kind of toss-up games, four games that UCF should win, and that's seven, and then five games that I think that they're most likely going to lose. I have UCF this season going 6-6, six and six, just breaking down the schedule based on what I think is going to happen. I think they get the win this week against South Carolina State. I'm on record as saying that. I had them winning 31-14 against South Carolina State. And I'm going to double-check the line. But what about you when you uh, take a look at the UCF schedule? What do you think is a realistic record for UCF, like best case, worst case? It, it's tricky because I think it's one of those things where – you're going to have maybe two to three to four games that are decided by one possession here or there, a turnover here or a turnover there. And that could be the difference between this team winning maybe two or three games and maybe this team finishing second in the American Conference in the Eastern Division. Because you look at that division, uh, Jeff, UConn's had UCF's number, but they're not like a world-beater team. In fact, they struggled in their opener against Maine. East Carolina's got a new head coach in Scotty Montgomery. Uh, you look at, at them as probably kind of in transition themselves in East Carolina, Cincinnati. Uh, I, you know, everybody likes Cincinnati and their athletes. They struggled against Tennessee Martin. There's questions about Hayden Moore and Gunnar Keel at the quarterback. Tommy Tuberville on there, the hot seat. And UCF gets to host them as well. Uh, Temple lost a lot of personnel defensively on the team. So, you know, South Florida's the favorites in these. So, you know, if you win, a, you know, you look at the schedule. I think Tulane's a very winnable game. Tulane didn't impress me against Wake Forest. I think UCF can win that game at home. You look at that game. You look at their other home games. Tulsa is probably a little better, but again, you have them at home. Cincinnati's at home. They do have to travel to UConn. That's tough. You don't know what the weather will be like. I think the guarantee, I don't know, guarantee loss is a strong word, but the games that they're probably definitely feel pretty confident they're probably going to lose is at Michigan at Houston and at South Florida. And I know Knights fans don't want to hear that, but that's just reality. So right. I feel that those are three games that they're going to lose. Okay. I agree with you. I think they beat South Carolina state. And I think a 17 to 20 point margin sounds about right. I think they beat FIU, you know, the toss up games, like the Maryland games and it's a toss up game. I, I don't have a good read on that game. East Carolina yeah. at East Carolina is a toss up game. Cause you don't, again, it's a tough place there at the boneyard in Greenville. So that's a hard one to read. But I agree with you. I think five, anywhere from, I'm going to say five and seven, six and six, and I think a Cure Bowl trip in, in, in order would be, uh, and I think that'd be a success. And I think it's for Scott Frost and company because, I mean, they won't admit it publicly, but I think, don't you think if you're the you're Scott Frost and the staff, you're just trying to get through this season and build some positives for this program and get those freshman kids that you brought in, like the running backs and other positions and other players you brought in experience for next year and build for next year. And um, and if so, I think if you could fast forward, they would, but you want to kind of build that culture and get, you know, some wins and get those young kids some experience. 
that's going to be very interesting to me. How he plays, how many of the young players he plays as freshmen. Does he play other quarterbacks? Does he play, for example, Milton, who is the quarterback that many believe will be the starter next year? There, does he redshirt him? And that's what I'm going to be very interested in, Jeff, for this South Carolina State game. And let's be honest, the Michigan game. If the Michigan game is a one lopsided game, who does? What other quarterback does he play other than Justin Holman? Does he play Nick Patty? Does he play Gary Kruzek? Or does he play Milton? Because remember, Holman's a senior. So, and Patty's a senior. So you go in the next year when you have more of your personnel in, who's going to be that quarterback? And maybe you want to get that guy some reps uh, this year to get him ready for next year and still redshirt him. So I'm fascinated to see that early. Does he play Milton? Because a lot of people have raved about Milton at practice and that he is the future of UCF football at the quarterback position. Yeah, he had his eye on him when he was out at Oregon to try and run yeah. that offense. So clarification on the redshirt thing. There is a hardship waiver, but – in general, if you if you take the field, uh, you have you end up blowing the red shirt unless you get injured early in the season, uh, and then I think it's I think twenty percent of the season that so if he can steps, get the if medical plays, red shirt. But if he plays and he's healthy through the end of the year, then that's then that's a blown red shirt right there. So he may not play. Probably then wouldn't. That's going to be the thing. If he doesn't play Milton against South Carolina State or Michigan, I think that tells you that he's going to redshirt him. But if he plays him, uh, that tells me that he's going to get reps throughout the year. So, And, again, he's not in the depth chart-wise. There's The expectation is that he won't play because he needs to kind of, you know, kind of build bulk up a little bit more, and I think they would like to work on that. So my guess is they'll redshirt him and just go ahead with Holman. In fact, uh, Frost addressed that. Jerry asked him about, hey, is there a chance you're going to play other quarterbacks? And Scott Frost says, no, this is Justin Holman's team. I think he was just the most efficient. Um, you know, he of all the guys, he was the one that was in here in the summer uh, grinding to learn it. Um, you know, it's a process, and he still has a ways to go. But throughout the, the body of work in fall camp, um, he was the one that was most consistent and got the ball in the right place. Uh, the majority of the time. And that's really all it takes in this offense is make the right decisions, make them fast, and, and the offense and the playmakers should take care of the rest. Yeah, I think the ideal situation for Scott Frost would be he doesn't have to use Mackenzie Milton at all. See, I think the other thing is um, I'm more, I'm interested to see what he's going to do with some of his other skill guys, like Adrian Killens, yeah. um, who he might want to keep around uh, a little bit longer. You know, if this team gets competitive – early you know then all of a sudden you're kind of confronted with the situation where okay i gotta i gotta keep my guys out there i can't um you know I, I can't be you know experimenting with personnel so i think that the real crux of the schedule is that maryland game on september 17th and i told this eric casilius earlier uh this week on uh, on the sports talk florida 1080 the team in the morning i, I don't think you're going to get much of a read of UCF in these first two games. South Carolina State is an FCS opponent, and then you're going to Michigan, top five team. God only knows what's going to happen in that game. But if UCF plays well against Maryland, even if they lose, I think that's going to be a pretty good indicator for the remainder of the season. If they don't play well and lose, then it could be a very difficult situation. We might see a little bit more experimentation with... uh, some of the guys that, that he may want to go put out there. But I do think in an ideal situation, yeah, Scott Frost wants to preserve some of his young guys as much as he can. And don't forget, you know, it's not just Justin Holman that's out there. If if he falters or gets hurt, he's also got another senior quarterback in Nick Patty who, who he can run out there. Uh, so he doesn't have to burn Mackenzie Milton if something happens to Justin Holman outright. I've said that before that I think if this team goes 6-6, six and six, they should be popping champagne corks in the football offices because to go from 0-12 and really a really bad 0-12. Remember back in 04, that 0-11 team? They at least fought like hell in every game, right? Yeah. Last year, you just watched that team give up in game after game. Sure, and, and they had injuries. Justin Holman injures his finger in the, you know, in the first series of the Stanford game. In the second game of the season, you got Jordan Aiken get, blows out his, his knee on the kickoff against Furman. I mean, anything that could go wrong went bad, and I do believe in that. I believe that if things go negative, that that does affect you the rest of the season. Like, as crazy as this sounds, 
had UCF come back and finish that drive against FIU in that last drive of the game and win that game, I think they might have had a different season. Maybe they don't win the conference or anything, but I don't think they would have gone 1-11. I think they would have probably won five, six, whatever games. But they lost the way they did to FIU. It was just set the negative tone for the year. And then, of course, Holman getting injured against Stanford and get blown out there and then losing the Furman. I think anybody – and I was at that Furman game. When that, that moment you knew, oh, this season's pretty much done. Yeah, when the <laughs> Furman loss happened, that was pretty much abandoned ship at that point. Yeah. I, th- I think yeah. it's – I think it's – I'm interested in seeing how they get up for that Maryland game at home. I agree with I'm you. I'm really interested that. in that Temple game at home too because Temple's going to be a good team. P.J. Walker's sure. back. He's a senior. Everyone remembers the fits he gave us a couple years ago in the J.J. Wharton game. Yeah, he's th- that kid's going to be a problem, and I, that's, an Octo- that's on October 15th. And then right after sure. that, you have those back-to-back road games, tough road games at UConn, at Houston. That's the stretch where we're going to find out what we have here. I think it's going to be extremely tough. And, oh, by the way, after that, they have a week off, and then they got Cincinnati at home on November the 12th. So right. Temple, UConn, Houston, Cincy in on four consecutive games. That's a tough middle of the schedule for UCF. Like I said, if Scott Frost gets out of there, gets out of here six and six and gets this team to a bowl game, even if it's the Cure Bowl, we should be celebrating in the streets because after what we saw last year, I'll take five hundred every any day of the week. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll see what happens. And I think that I agree with you. I, I, I wouldn't jump in the conclusions over the first two games of the year. You know, if they blow out South Carolina State, that doesn't mean, you know, I wouldn't overreact. It means that they're, like, going to be a top 25 team. If they get blown out by Michigan, I wouldn't overreact to that. If they play a close game with Michigan, I wouldn't overreact to that either because, you know, Michigan might just come out and not take UCF seriously. So I agree with you. I think the Maryland game, to me, is a much, much better barometer of where uh, this team is at moving forward. Because, uh, like I said, I think you got a couple of the extremes in the first couple of games. So I agree with you. I think game three uh, and going to that game, it, it will give you an idea where you're at against Maryland. And I'll close with this. Don't sleep on the FIU game because that, that school gives us problems too, unfortunately. So, <laughs> like I said, I'm hoping for six and six. Now, oh, before we get to that, let's take a quick break. And we'll be right back to talk a little bit more Big 12. Hello, Night Nation. This is Andrew Fegley. This is Trey Strelka with the UCF Nightline Podcast, the original, the number one rated UCF sports podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, it's UCF underscore Nightline and at www.ucfnightlinepodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to us as well on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And when you get sick of listening to these guys, make sure you look us up. Don't forget, that's the UCF Nightline Podcast. Go Knights! Charge on! Now, back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. All right, Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez back with you here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And let's talk about our favorite story to talk about <laughs> this entire summer. The Big 12. Brett McMurphy and Jake Trotter coming out with a story uh, Friday, September, or excuse me, Thursday, September the 1st, saying that the Big 12 has narrowed down its list of expansion candidates to at least 12 schools. Here are the 12 schools. Air Force, BYU, UCF, Cincinnati, Colorado State, Yukon, Houston, Rice, South Florida, SMU, Temple, and Tulane. Who is not in? Who didn't make the cut? Arkansas State, Boise State. East Carolina, New Mexico, Northern Illinois, San Diego State, UNLV, and reportedly Memphis now, late coming in as a team that did not make the cut for the Big 12. I still feel like this is this is the college football version of The Bachelor. I don't like how the Big 12 is handling this. I don't know. What do you think? Does UCF has a, have a shot out of these 12 schools? I mean, the Big 12, there's so many. I mean, we, we can... That's a whole story we don't even have time to get into about their ineptness in this situation. I think there are serious questions whether they're going to expand at all. Um, you know, I've been told that networks are not thrilled with them, ESPN and Fox, and that's not a good company to have ang- angry, to be angry at you. Uh, if you want to survive in college football and you want to have a good TV deal, you might want to you know, have a good partnership with them. So that's a part of the problem. Um, the other problem is, and I've said this a million times for the last couple of years, the hardest thing is not to say agree, to agree to expand. It's to expand with who. And that's going to be the issue here. And I've been told, for example, like Houston, Oklahoma State, 
West Virginia and Kansas right now are dead set against Houston. Oklahoma State recruits a lot in Houston. They don't want Houston to be in their deal. The problem is the television networks want Houston in, and Texas wants Houston in because they have a side deal with Houston with property uh, that they would get in Houston for their uh, school. So there's a lot of agendas in this. And so if the networks want Houston, you better put Houston in or you're not going to get your money you want. And I think that's the issue here. And then the other issue is how many if they do even agree to expand, how many do they expand by? Do they expand by two or do they expand by four? And I think of UCF, I think the only shot UCF's got, Jeff, is if they expand by four. And then if you expand by four, now you're, you know, with all due respect to the Rices and the Air Forces, I, I think they're long shots. I don't buy that. Um I think it's between, again, what we've talked about in the past, I think it's between Cincinnati, it's between Houston, Connecticut, uh, BYU, uh, UCF. And the good news for UCF is I think the BYU issues with their school and their and their obviously uh, beliefs is will be an issue that they will have to address as that's been brought up in the summer. So the longer this drags out, I think it does help UCF because I think it kind of Stop people stop talking about the 0 and 12. But I'm just very skeptical that the Big 12 wants to go into Florida because, again, what what do you get out of it? What do you get out of coming to Florida? Oh, if you're Oklahoma and Texas, you already come into Florida, you already can get kids there. So, really, the only schools that would benefit from Florida are schools like Kansas State and Iowa State. And you and I know that Oklahoma and Texas don't care about those schools. So, and really don't want them to get better. So, I just have questions about them going to Florida, uh, and I just think it's so political, and uh, I just think that the TV networks are going to have a say in this, and I think the TV networks are going to say, why do we want UCF to go to the Big 12 when we already have them under the American Conference for a cheaper deal? Yeah, a couple points. You know, why, that- why, why, why would I want to pay 20 to – why am I going to pay you 20 to $25 million so UCF can come to this league when I have UCF already playing on on my network for about a what a million or two million? Yeah, what if you're, if you're ESPN, that's what you're saying. But the other yeah. th- the other thing that's that you have to kind of factor in as a wild card is Fox's play because sure. the, they own the other half of the Big Twelve contract now. Reportedly, according to McMurphy. As part of the next step in the process, representatives from each school. This is from McMurphy's article, by the way. Representatives from each school will make in-person presentations to Big 12 officials in Dallas next week, according to sources. They say it hopes to make a decision on expansion by the Big 12's regularly scheduled board of directors meeting on October the 17th. So that's we thought that maybe there would be an announcement with Houston in advance of their game uh, this weekend sure. against Oklahoma. That looks like it's not going to be the case. So circle October 17th on your calendar. A couple points oh, I wanted boy. to make. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? A couple points I wanted to make. Um, one of the uh, w- one of the commenters on the message board said that y- you and I missed on something saying the West Virginia athletic director said that travel partners is not a consideration, to which I will say that's false. And the reason why it's false is because, of course, the West Virginia athletic director would say that. Everyone has to travel to him. Right. The problem is the other schools – don't like traveling to West Virginia because it's hard to get to from the nearest Big 12 uh, team. Remember, from the nearest Big 12 school, which I think is Iowa State. Remember that the thing with travel partners is it's the non-revenue sports that this affects. So it's your so from men's basketball on down, even though men's basketball is a revenue sport, from men's basketball on down, that's who that that's who it affects because of the travel budgets. Okay, and that's so, significant. Yeah, that and, is significant. I and, always scoff. I've always scoffed. Oh, it's a football driven. Yeah, it's football driven to a degree, but it's really a budget driven deal. And right. universities care about their budgets and they care about all these sports and how much it's costing to go from connecting flights. And that's an issue. And that's an underwriting storyline into this, which is why I think many believe that Cincinnati is at the top of the list because Cincinnati would kind of serve as West Virginia's travel partner, if exactly. you will, uh, and they you know, go in that direction. And some have even gone as far, and I've said this, if they decided to go with Cincinnati and Connecticut, uh, they could actually have some flexibility in that 
Connecticut could become all of a sudden West Virginia's travel partner and they could do Cincinnati and Iowa State as travel partners if they wanted to go that route. That's an, that's an avenue that has been, you know, they could go in that direction and been discussed. So, um, you know, who knows? Um, I think everything's on the table. I think everything's in play. And I wouldn't believe one word that these people say when they say, <laughs> that, oh, it's not, a, you know, we we don't care about the travel. Oh, trust me, other, other people do. Oh, we're for Houston. Well, I'm against Houston. Well, everybody's got their pros and cons in yeah. this. Everybody's in it for themselves. It's whoever can get other- to can get to eight votes sure. out of the ten. That's what sure. it is. And 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 I scoff. Everybody keeps telling me, well, the ESPN's opinion doesn't matter. Really? Last I checked, they pretty much run college football. Last I checked, the college football playoff is on ESPN. And ask the NHL and other sports that have gone away from ESPN and how they've been faring. So to me, the Big 12, whether they like it or not, they want ESPN to be a part of this deal. They don't have to be the main deal in this, but they have to be a part of this deal and be a partner in it, as well as Fox. And I think that's going to be interesting to me, is can all those parties come to some sort of consensus? And I think you have to be skeptical about that. I've said it all this time. I think they will expand by two at the most, at least for the immediate future. And I think if I had to pick, I think it's Cincinnati and Houston. Yeah, I think that Cincinnati and Houston right now are in the catbird seat for the very reasons that we talked about. And a quick note on the Cincinnati to Morgantown. That's a 308-mile drive through Columbus, Ohio, four hours and 41 minutes to get from Cincinnati to Morgantown. Um, yep. that, that will, and, and when you're talking about sports that don't charter flights, fly commercial, okay, and then take buses— yep. Like yep. your volleyball team, your uh, your soccer teams, and all that. Yep. That matters because that's a that's relatively speaking, that's a short drive from a big airport. All right, and then you fly- women's basketball, women's, women's basketball. basketball, right? And then Morgantown, not far from Pittsburgh. After you're yep. done with that, you fly, you drive up to Pittsburgh, and then you fly out of there to Dallas or wherever it is that you have to go. So yeah. that's why I think Cincinnati's in the catbird seat and. And thinking that travel partners is not a, is not a factor is positively ridiculous because all of those schools and all those and all of those teams are operating at a minus. They're all losing money for the schools anyway. So wouldn't the other nine schools in the Big Twelve like to lose less money on that road trip? It's a way of saving exactly. money, and that's what we're going to. One other note I wanted to make about um, the Big Twelve. And this is why I agree with you that I think they're only going to expand by two and not four, is they're going to keep this expansion talk going even after they invite two, because they know that it drives web traffic and it drives numbers. And here's why that's important. The other conferences have their networks that govern their tier three rights now with the ACC coming online. The Big 12 is the only one that doesn't, all right? They leave the third-tier live event rights to the individual schools to negotiate with their individual networks. So when the renegotiations come around in 2025, when these third-tier contracts come up for bids, the other conferences are going to have their networks as part of the package deal. The Big 12 doesn't have a network, as we already know, and they're not going to have one. So what do the Big 12 executives present to the networks as the as proof that their brand is worth paying a lot of money for? The answer is web clicks. Because in about nine years, think about the whole cord cutting thing happening. I think we're going to see the cable networks go away. The cable networks really kind of go away and sort of morph into streaming networks. And how do you prove to, say, the Amazons and Netflixes of the world who are going to be bidding on these against for example, ESPN and Fox and NBC and all these others, that you have value. Well, you show them how often you show up in Google Trends. You show them how much you're talked about online. How much traffic do you drive? And that's why it benefits the Big 12 to keep this expansion talk going because it drives web clicks all over the, all over the web, all across the country from all the schools, UCF included, who want to get in, not to mention the web clicks around the schools themselves that are already in saying, oh, let's, who do we want in our conference? So they can go to the executives come 2024, 2025 and say, 
Look at how much traffic we're driving. We're out sure. trafficking the SEC, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, everybody else, and we've been doing it for 10 years. So that's why they're continuing to drive this traffic, because everyone's talking about the Big 12. Right, and let's be honest. I mean, these schools are still going to be in the mix. So, like, let's say they decided in October we're just going to expand by two for 2017. And, and, and yeah, and here's what they're going to say. They're going to expand by two, and, I, and I'll, I'd be willing to bet a paycheck that they're, they're going to say this. They're going to expand by two. They're going to say who it is, and they're going to say, but we're probably not going to be done yet. We're going to re-examine right. expansion, expansion yep. again and maybe add two more in the next year. We're going to keep the option right. open. And then we're yep. right back to where we started. Exactly. In the next year or two. Because there's no rush. Those same schools are going to be there. You're still, And I could see that being a deal that the TV networks and the conference come in with. With Okay, fine. If you want to expand by four, fine. But don't do it at once. Do it little bit by little bit. So we'll pay you, you know, for this amount for two teams in 20 uh, for the 2017 season, let's say. And we'll pay you uh, this amount for two more teams for either 2018 or 2019. And that way, instead of writing a huge check where right now the networks don't want to do. I mean, uh, so I, I could see something like that breaking down very easily. But again, can these schools come to the consensus? What agendas do they have? Those remain to be seen. And look, I mean. At the end of the day, Jeff, I, I've said this already. I think the Big 12 is just kind of on borrowed time. I don't believe the Big 12, as you know it, will be around in 2024. I think there will be – I would, in fact, I would not even be surprised if the Big 12 in 2025 or 2026 probably has a mixture of the leftovers from Big 12, and I mean no Texas and no Oklahoma and no Oklahoma State, for example – and they kind of combine with the American Conference. So, kind of like the Big East. Yeah, I just hope that, you know, at some point UCF can get in and get that revenue while they can because well, that's UCF what it deserves is. to be on that, on that tier with, the, with those schools. I mean, you, you mean to tell me that Iowa State and well. Kansas State deserve to be Power <laughs> 5 schools and UCF doesn't based on their alumni bases, based on um, – the sheer size of the schools in terms of markets. But you know, but you know, that's not what this is about. Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Not, that's the thing. That's not about that. It's never been about that. Well, like if been, you held, but if you held like a fantasy draft of yeah. of schools, and we say we're going to pick like the top sixty four schools to go um, into this into let's say like a division four, like was speculated about uh, a few months ago. You mean to tell me that someone's going to pick Kansas State and Iowa State and now Baylor and TCU over UCF? Really? Maybe not, but I will say this. College football in particular and college athletics has always been a small market sport. True. Think about it. Like, what big markets really dominate college football? Tuscaloosa's not a huge market. Been to Tuscaloosa. That's Birmingham, Alabama's the number one television-rated market for college football because of Alabama and Auburn. Uh, look at Florida and Gainesville. And, you know, there's a theory out there that you're better off being in a Gainesville and in Tallahassee and in Manhattan because that's the only game in town. Whereas in Miami, as we've seen, Jeff, with the Hurricanes, when they struggle – they're an afterthought. Yeah, there's other you stuff have to do. <laughs> exactly. A place you've worked at in Atlanta. Uh, Georgia Tech doesn't register as big as big over there. They're not not compared to Georgia. Georgia's in Athens. Yeah. Georgia although Tech's to be big. although to be fair, Athens is is within Atlanta's Atlanta's market. Atlanta's sure. TV market. So that that's kind of, even though it's about an hour outside of Atlanta, that's still within that it still rates within that area so it rates but it's not directly right there where the falcons and the hawks and the braves and like georgia tech is which is right in that city in downtown atlanta now they're obviously moving these stadium and stuff but like i mean you i mean again it, college athletics has done fine with these markets lsu and baton rouge that's a lsu state tulane's in new orleans they don't register in new orleans nobody cares about tulane in new orleans because that's an lsu state so while yes, market is big and TV markets and all that stuff is good and important in the and in, in all that, college football and these people has always been about tradition and and dominating that specific area that they have and they that's why the SEC look at the SEC what's the biggest market that the SEC has what Nashville uh, <laughs> yeah which, which well which probably, is well, it, I would program. I would still say Atlanta 
because of if Georgia. If you want to count Georgia, if you want to count Georgia, that's fine because they're, I guess, an hour away. Uh, but I mean, the SEC is doing just fine with not too many big markets. Um, so it, it, I think that gets a little overblown too. I think what they want is success. They want the brand name that kind of registers. Yes, TV mark is a part of it. Yes, student uh, uh, enrollment is a part of it. But success on the field matters as well. Yeah. They want to. They don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to bring in a couple teams that go two and ten and draw eighteen thousand and. Nobody cares about like what good is it if you bring a team from a big market if they don't nobody cares about them in that market. That's a, so I think there's a lot of very uh, variables to this and uh, you know we'll see what happens and certainly yeah would UCF uh, do better than say the Iowa State's in Kansas State sure but I would also remind people that in Manhattan Kansas that is the only game in town whereas in Orlando that is UCF is not the only game in town. Yeah and the other thing too is to mention and and I'll finish this point with this. UCF's play is the long-term growth play because the university expanded Absolutely. so so by so much so quickly that you're booking on these conferences say saying hey we want to jump on board with all these Big 12 alumni hopefully right now because in 20 30 years you know our generation of folks are going to be old enough to start donating and then our kids are going to keep going there right Absolutely, so, and so, so, so and, if so, I'm, but I'm not convinced that they think that long term. That's the problem. Sure, but that's why Danny White's message has been: we got to focus on being a top twenty-five athletic department. Yes, and and that means everything. So if you're a top twenty-five athletic department, that sells itself, and I think that's what Danny White's trying to accomplish. And I think he's doing it the right way. You can't control if you're Danny White and UCF. You can't control if UCF goes into the Big 12 or not. I know fans think they can, but they don't. So you can't control that. What you can control is building around your athletic department. Because I could make the argument that had UCF maybe taken care of basketball better over the last handful or 10 years, they would be in better position to get to the Big 12. But because they didn't, because the big the basketball has struggled, they haven't made the NCAA tournament against 2005, you're a one-trick pony. And then what happens when football has an off year or a bad year like it did in 2015? Who's your back? Who do you back? Who's your backup? That's the right. issue. You have to have. It's not just a one-sport pony. And I think that's you have to have a good solid ground. And I think Danny White's on his way to doing that with the facilities, with football. Uh, basketball is going to start chartering flights. I think they're trying to improve that basketball program. Uh, baseball, obviously, with Greg Lovelady there. They just had a big donation for their baseball stadium. Obviously, the tennis. I mean, you talk about the big one of the to me one of the most fascinating stories. In fact, I've, I'm hoping to uh, speak to John Roddick in the future here, mm -hmm. and if if not on if not on this podcast on my radio show, and that's you know about what UCF is doing. They're in partnership with the USTA. A huge deal there that I think is going to be a lot of uh, focus to UCF and a lot of NCAA tournaments, regionals, and championships will be held at that USTA center in the future. So a lot of things going on, and I think that's what Danny White's trying to build, which is why I think actually if the Big 12 dragged their feet for another year or two, I think that actually works to UCF's benefit. The oh, yes, it does. Out, oh, yes, it, it does. <laughs> it benefits UCF. So it, it, as bizarre as it sounds, that's what I would say if you're UCF. You're hoping this thing drags out. You're hoping that the conflict still exists for another six to six months to a year because then by the time maybe they figure it out in a year or two, you're in good shape and your perception's different. And now they're like, hey, you know what? This UCF brand, wow, what a difference a year or two makes. Let's bring them in. I think it's nuts that they are – stringing fans out like this but you know what do i have to say what 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 what, what do i know anyway let's talk about some of the other uh sports yeah. around ucf real quick while we get the chance uh volleyball three and one opening weekend i thought that they played extremely well in that opening weekend tournament defeating stony brook kent state and stetson uh losing to florida state in three but played them tough especially in the first two sets Volleyball is now currently on the road at the Saluki Invitational at in Carbondale, Illinois, on the campus of Southern Illinois. They're back at home next weekend with two huge matches, Friday, September 9th, against Florida Atlantic and then LSU in the Holiday Inn Orlando East UCF Classic uh, on Friday, September 9th. So if you can make it out to the venue, uh, be there for that. Women's soccer, on the other hand, 
Off to a bit of a rough start, but a very tough schedule at 1-3. The lone win against UMass. They lost at North Carolina and at Duke and home to South Carolina. All three highly ranked teams. They're playing uh, Friday, September 2nd at Oklahoma State. Another tough one. Uh, but home on Sunday, September 4th. So uh, we're posting this on Saturday, September 3rd. If you can head up to DeLand to check out the women's soccer team and give them a, give them a little bit of a boost, uh, please do on September 4th on Sunday. They're back home at the UCF Soccer Complex Thursday, September 8th against FIU. Men's soccer, on the other hand, had a game canceled at Charlotte because of the hurricane that blew through. They lost their opener at Grand Canyon. By the way, you were saying to me this to me earlier. Grand Canyon is no joke. That's a 10,000-seat soccer stadium that they have out there in Phoenix. Uh, the Knights play at South Carolina on September the 4th. That's the Sunday. Uh, they have another road game against Mercer uh, on September the 11th. First home soccer match of the season for UCF men's soccer isn't until September 14th. That's a Wednesday against Florida Gulf Coast for Coach Brian Cunningham's team. So that's uh, that's what's upcoming in well, uh, UCF land. Eric, quickly, what, do you, what are you looking forward to out of well, all that? Well, let's give an update on this. Actually, positive news for UCF. A dramatic 3-2 win over Oklahoma State in overtime. Oh, excellent. So, in overtime. All right. A 3-2 win. Morgan Ferrero buries it on a penalty kick. Uh, big win. That's a huge win for Coach Sahadak. Uh, against a very good Oklahoma State team out of the Big 12. So, by the way, it was a good segue there. Um, and yeah. really a team that fought back. UCF trailed most of this match. They were down 2 nothing. As a matter of fact, Jeff, they were down 2 nothing with only about 15 minutes left in regulation. Yeah, 83rd, 83rd minute, down 2 nothing. Carol Rodriguez gets her third goal of the season to make it 2-1. Five minutes later, Saiga Fredrickson gets her first goal of the season to tie it at two, and then Morgan Ferreira's penalty kick in the 96th minute wins it for UCF. So a dramatic wow. comeback for UCF women's soccer. Hey, congratulations to uh, Tiffany Roberts-Sahedek. That's a huge win. I think Oklahoma State's ranked, too. If, if, is, is that right? Well, uh, I wonder about that, but I, it's a huge win because, remember, this team is still young. Even though they have a lot of returners from last year, they're still a young team. You mentioned the hard schedule. You lose at Carolina at Duke, two top ten programs there. Lose a hard one, to, a tough one to South Carolina at home, and then you're down 2 nothing Oak State. And I should correct myself, actually, because uh, Oklahoma State not ranked in the, uh, in the NSCAA uh, coaches' rankings, although they are in the uh, RPI in the uh, in the 120s, I believe. So, um, but nonetheless, that's pretty tough with a Big 12 opponent. This will get them better, and I know Coach Sahedek, and you talked to her on the podcast, and I've talked to her about it in the past. I think the goal is to have this team tough and, and mentally ready for conference, and uh, that was a huge win. That's a, that could be a match that you look back. A month or two from now, and say, wow, that's kind of where it started to click for this team moving forward. So that's yeah. huge for them. Men's soccer, I watched that Grand Canyon match. Uh, what a stadium. It's the best men's soccer facilities that I've ever seen in college. Uh, I think they had over 5,000 fans in that game. The yep. student section was on top of you, or right behind the net. They, you know, It was tremendous. I mean, the, pre the presentation of the broadcast was amazing. Kobe Jones... The former U.S. soccer player was an analyst for Grand Canyon. Yeah, so, interesting because uh, Grand Canyon is a is the only, if I'm not mistaken, the only for profit institution in in the NCAA in uh, Division One. And so, well, they have the resources to do it if that's the case. And that's the thing people got to understand: men's soccer is a little different in that not everybody, you know puts in you see uh, uh, men's soccer programs like florida and florida state don't play and stuff like that so you might look at a grand canyon or an akron and you're like should we be losing to these teams well these programs these schools invest a lot in men's soccer uh big time like this is a big deal to them or let's be honest uh, jeff ucf men's soccer it's kind of you know it's in the it, it they, they support it but then at the same time there's other things that they occupy the department as well so it's not like the end-all, be-all like it is, say, with a Grand Canyon. So I, I think people got to keep that in mind when you look at these men's soccer games and results. Don't get sucked in because, oh, I've never heard of Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon has taken men's soccer. They believe they can compete with the best in the country. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I would caution people on that uh, before jumping out uh, with 
you know, reactions to the men's soccer team. And then as far as the volleyball team's concerned, you saw them up close. Um, I was impressed by their wins, how they handled things very comfortably. There was no letdown. And you look at the Florida State match, 25-23, 25-23. They were right there in the first two sets. The Seminoles are a team that's a top 25 team. Uh, I thought UCF handled themselves very well. And I think I think you told me afterwards, you feel this is clearly a much better team than they were last year. Yeah, much more versatile because uh, Kia Bright's back. She's, uh, she's healthy again. And just having her on that side of the floor opens up so much. Jayla Hervey had a great weekend. Um, the folks in the middle also, Ann Richards had a very good weekend for UCF. I think that was underrated. And then the other thing that Todd Dagenay told me was, how important Kia was defensively. Um, that was what they really missed last year because she was, you know, everyone talks about how great her, she was offensively. Defensively, she's a very good two-way player. Um, and I thought UCF's defense last week was phenomenal, really, in all the matches. It really, that, that, that was what stood out to me. They're playing Southern Illinois. We're recording this Friday, September 2nd. They're in a fifth set against Southern Illinois right now. Um, Quick note about this tournament that they're that they're playing in the Saluki Invitational. Uh, two of the three teams, inclu- uh, two of the other three teams that UCF is playing, including Southern Illinois, were ranked in the mid-major uh, top twenty-five heading into the season. So this tournament is no slouch for UCF. Don't think it's a bunch of cupcakes because it's not against Northern Arizona and uh, Western and uh, Western Michigan. Again, pay close attention to UCFKnights.com for uh, the latest updates on that. One last thing before we go, Eric. We want to bid a uh, fond farewell, but not too much of a farewell to a guy who we've known for quite some time at UCF, uh, a guy I've known since I've been working there. Brian Ormiston, uh, it was announced, is uh, leaving the um, UCF uh, Sports Communications Office to take a position with the USTA down in the new uh, complex uh, in uh, Lake Nona. And uh, and so we we remember him back from when he was the SID for baseball. He moved up yeah. to football and worked with Coach O'Leary. And uh, he is on his way uh, to the USTA, leaving UCF. And we wanted to uh, send out a special thank you to Brian. But we also wanted to say that we'll be seeing him again, hopefully sometime in the future, once UCF's relationship with the USTA and the new tennis complex uh, gets going. Hopefully we'll be seeing more of him as a UCF tennis uh, begins its resurgence uh, under John Roddick. So thank you, Ormo, for everything that you've done for us over the years. Yeah, I mean, I've, like you said, I've known him back since he first started there. And he was doing UCF baseball, and I was doing some UCF baseball broadcast. He actually assisted in softball back then. I actually worked a broadcast with him in 2007 with yeah. softball. So uh, big tennis fan. So uh, I'm not surprised he's at the USTA. I hope to run into him over there. I'm sure he'll be at UCF events, but certainly it's been a part of a lot of uh, memorable moments, certainly with the football program as well. And uh, so some good times. And I think uh, he'll do very well in his, his next endeavor over there at the USTA. And, uh, but you're right. Put in a lot of uh, years and uh, it will be different. It will be strange uh, when I go into the press box on September the 17th against the Maryland Terrapins and he's not around as far as in charge and running around and, <laughs> and telling people what to do is for the stats crew and, uh, and stuff like that and sarcastic jokes. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, he'll do, you know, he, he'll, he, he's going to be just fine and, uh, he'll still be around. Well, we wanted to thank him for everything and, uh, and, and wish him all the best at the USTA. They, uh, they have no idea how lucky they are that they have him. So, all right. Well, that's going to do it, Eric. How we how can uh, people get in touch with you, and where are you going to be for the uh, first Frost opener? Well, uh, you can find me on Eric Lopez Elo on Twitter, and uh, look forward to that. I will be watching the game from home because uh, there's so many college football games, so I'm going to be watching a million games at once, probably tweeting about it during the games. Uh, but again, I will be uh, also, of course, producing Tuck and O'Neill weekdays, Monday to Friday. We'll have an announcement about a future co-host of that show down yeah. the road. We'll get into that in a podcast. We won't spill it right now. But um, we'll tell you about that down the road. But talk to O'Neill on 1080, 3 to 7. Also, September 10th, make a note, I'll be hosting, of course, 11 to 1, the Sports Talk Florida Insider Show. We do it from Universal Nissan and Universal Hyundai at the corner of Orange Blossom Trail in 417 on the 10th. 
We're going to have your good friend, Jeff, Trace Palka, will call in from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yeah, we'll Trace Palka, up in, yeah, he's going to be up in Ann Arbor. That's right. Uh, a co- the so, uh, co-host of the uh, Nightline podcast. We're going to check in. Where, he's going to check in from Ann Arbor, give us a live view, uh, update. Uh, what's it like, the atmosphere over there? We'll give you kind of an official pregame of that, if you will. Uh, that'll be on September 10th. Also, September 12th, you can check me out at Harry Buffalo for the Football Insider Show, 6 to 7 on 1080. So, uh, you'll be hearing a lot of my voice over the uh, the next few uh, weeks and months, and then also on the site. Look for in the next week or so. My little, I'll have a feature on Shelby Turnier, the UCF uh, All American former pitcher, just won an MPF championship. We're going to talk about that, but she's also got a new career path that she's going to go that we'll get into uh, in the future. There, so a lot of stuff going on. Good stuff. We got a lot of fun, and don't forget to follow Eric at Eric Lopez Elo on Twitter. Don't forget to follow me at Jeff underscore Sharon. And as always, follow us at UCF underscore Banneret for all the latest on Twitter. Look us up on fi- on Facebook. Make sure you like us. Leave us a comment. You can get all of our latest stuff there. Subscribe to our email list uh, our email list at blackandgoldbanneret.com. And also subscribe to this podcast if you haven't yet on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, which I finally got working after all this. So, Eric Lopez, thank you once again. Enjoy First Frost, brother. You too, my friend. Talk to you later. All right. And for Eric Lopez, I am Jeff Sharon. This has been the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Enjoy First Frost. Football season's underway for UCF. We'll catch you next week. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical.